encourage you to take your Bibles, if you have them, and turn with me to the book of 2 Kings. We continue our study through the Elisha narratives, these glorious stories of God's grace and favor to his people. If you're visiting with us, or if you have been here for a long time, our prayer is that this word of God would richly encourage your hearts. We'll read chapter 4, verses 38 to 44. Remember, whenever we see the word Lord in small caps, that's God's divine name, Yahweh, and so I'll read it in that way. Hear God's word. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 38. Now Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give to the men that they may eat. For thus says Yahweh, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of Yahweh. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Perhaps you read the Old Testament often and you think this culture, these stories, they happen in, in, in a time so far away, a, a culture so distant from ours, it, it seems so irrelevant, right, to our 21st century lives. That's one of the reasons I love the Elijah and the Elisha narratives, because they're not that way, right? Though they are set in a, a time far before ours, uh, it's a day and age that's very similar to ours. Consider first, uh, Elisha was ministering in a time when a vast number of people had no interest in the one true God or in his word. Now, of course, in Elisha's day, there are still very religious people. They just worship Baal instead of Yahweh. In our own day, we often hear of the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. A survey came out just this past week. It said that that number of the nuns, those who profess and identify with no religion, is up to 30% within our culture, 43% among those 18 to 29. Now, of course, no one worships nothing. And so even the nuns worship something. And ultimately, the God that they would worship is the God of self, right? Whatever I want, whatever I desire, whatever I feel. So we see a very uh, strong similarity to our culture and Elisha's culture, but also uh, Elisha was ministering in a time of national financial distress. Right? You see it there in verse 38, there's a famine in the land. Now, in America, certainly there are 
men and women, boys and girls who go to bed hungry every night. But as a country, we don't experience right, national devastating famine. But we've all experienced the sticker shock of inflation these past years. We've all experienced higher grocery store prices. We've all experienced adjustments to our budgets that have had to be made. We all remember a few years back at the beginning of COVID, right, when everything started shutting down and the grocery stores were empty and uh, goods and services were no longer available to us like they were before. Shortages of toilet paper and other things. As we were uh, at spring break, right before COVID hit, we were in Washington, D.C. We were driving home. Uh, we started getting text messages from people who said, like, there's no grocery stores. You know, there's no food on the shelves. Like, you need to buy food on your way home. And so we, we find a Walmart and uh, uh, outside of Chattanooga, we, we go. Elizabeth goes in to, uh, to shop. She starts talking to the cash, uh, the lady checking her out, who, who says something to the effect of, like, aren't you glad that it's about to be spring break? And, and Elizabeth said, well, we're actually on our way back from our spring break. The lady looked at Elizabeth and said, are you taking this food out of our state? Elizabeth like grabs the bags and quickly walks back to the car, right? We were in that time period. We know what it feels like to, to be in a time of relative famine, right? And so there's an external connection that we have to these stories of Elisha that, that in more prosperous times, perhaps we, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't feel so closely. And because of that, we're better able to hear what God wants to teach us about walking by faith in times of suffering and adversity. These two tales that we read here, true stories, point us to our God. They point us to the saints who walk before us. They point us to our Lord Jesus Christ. And as they point us in those three directions, they call us to do three things in our affliction. First, to cry out confidently to a God who cares about and is able to relieve our suffering. Second, they, they call us to remain faithful to God's commands in our affliction. And finally, they call us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who will one day set all things right. Let's look at these three things together this morning. First, the author of Kings wants us to hear that in our affliction, we must cry out confidently to a God who cares for us, a God who is able to relieve our suffering. I love, again, these Elisha stories in part because they teach us that our God is intimately concerned with all of our mundane moments, right? All those ordinary, run-of-the-mill, routine trials and tribulations that we go through, right? He's not just a God who deals with 50,000-foot issues, He's a God who cares about the, the nitty gritty, the, the boots on the ground level of our lives. We've seen it, haven't we? In, in chapter four, debt, right? childlessness, death. And now in both of these stories here, God is addressing this very earthy, very ordinary issue of providing and preparing daily bread. There's not much more mundane or more commonplace or more just ordinary and irregular than eating. You probably think about it and do it three times a day. It may seem a very trivial thing to you, right? We have you know, fast food restaurants on every corner with dollar menus. We have Walmarts and Kroger's and Sam's and Costco and Dollar Generals and convenience stores, right? You, you figure out what you want to eat. You make your list. You go to the grocery store. You grab it off the shelf. You bring it home. Maybe you, you, you pay a few dollars extra for someone else to grab it off the shelf, someone else to bring it to your house. You put it on your pantry and your fridge and your freezer, and it's there until you're ready to eat it. 
So food preparation, food provision is something that we spend relatively little amounts of our time on. And so it's hard for us to imagine how costly, how all-consuming in terms of time and, and money it would have been and still is for people living in agrarian subsistence economies like the one we're reading about here. It's hard for us to realize how tenuous their situation was and is. This threat of of drought or crop disease or, or insect invasion or enemy raiders coming from another community. That's the situation we find ourselves in here, right? In, in the story, it's, it's verse 38 again. Israel is in this time of, of famine. But in the face of these urgent situations, the text tells us that God cares and that God has power to relieve the suffering of his people. And it's evident through his prophet Elisha here. Right, the first story, the food that Elisha had provided for the prophets in Gilgal is spoiled by apparently a, a poisonous gourd that one of them had found out in the field as he was searching for more veggies to throw into the stew. As they begin to eat, they realize that it's inedible, perhaps even deadly, and, and so all these good ingredients, all the effort that had gone in, it's wasted. You might think, well, just make another pot. It's not that easy when it's a time of famine, all right? They can't do that. And so they cry out to Elisha, oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. It's poisonous. Help us. Doesn't, doesn't God care that we're starving? Doesn't God care that this stew is ruined? Of course, the answer is yes. Yes, God cares. And so through Elisha, he brings healing to the death in the pot. He makes the stew safe to eat. He uses flour as an outward sign, just as like he, he did back in chapter 2, and he threw salt into the spring and, and healed the waters. So God's care, God's power is evident here through the prophet Elisha. But the same is true in the second story. Now the issue isn't poisonous food, it's, it's insufficient food to go around. A man brings food in his sack, right? So you have enough food to fit on a man's back, 20 loaves of bread, some wheat kernels. Elisha, though, tells his servant to, to give it to the sons of the prophets so they can eat. And his servant's incredulous. How can I give this to 100 men? Right? Here, here are all the sons of the prophets. You want me to give these 20 loaves and these grain of kernel, kernels of grain to the, the, these 100 men? But Elisha declares the promise, the word of Yahweh, they shall eat and have some left. There will be leftovers, says God, because his power is such, his care is such, that he is able to multiply these small number of loaves in order to feed 100 men. Right? The contacts of a sack that a man has slung over his shoulder is going to provide a banquet for the sons of the prophets. Now remember, the book of Kings is written for those who are in exile in Babylon. And the author of the book is, is seeking to remind them, to assure them, that God cares about them and their suffering, that God is able, he's all powerful to relieve them in their suffering. And brothers and sisters, God is the, God, the same God today as he was back then. God is the same God today as he was back then. There is nothing too small, nothing too trivial to him. He cares about you. He cares about all of your struggles, all that you are going through, all of your needs, all of your afflictions, all your daily bread, and not just food, right? But everything that is a part and parcel of our daily lives in every sphere of life, our finances, our homes, our cars, our health, our schoolwork, 
our relationships, our struggles with our children, our struggles with ailing parents, our decisions that we have to make about where to live and, and where to work and whom to marry, all of our losses, all of our crosses, all of our heartaches, all of our exhaustion, all of our overwhelm, all of our confusion. The Lord cares about these things. And the Lord has power to deal with these things. He, he cares about the big things and the small things. And he can do something about them. And so therefore, he calls on us to cry out confidently for our daily bread, even as the Lord Jesus directs us in his prayer. See, nothing is too small to bring to God. Nothing is too big to bring to God. How does John Newton put it? Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Peter tells us, cast all of your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. He cares for us. And he's able to change any circumstance in which we find ourselves to relieve us of all of our suffering. And therefore we can cry out to him, confidently laying our burdens at his feet, knowing that he daily bears our burden. That's the first thing the author of Kings wants us to see, that in our affliction, we must cry out to the God who cares about and is able to relieve all of our suffering. But, but secondly, in our affliction, we must remain faithful to God's commands. Now, it would be very easy and very wrong to draw the conclusion from stories like this that, that God will always answer our prayer to relieve our suffering in this life when we cry out to him. But the Bible is clear, isn't it? That God doesn't always say yes to his people's prayers for the removal of affliction. We think of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 who, who prayed three times for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. Jesus asked twice that the cup of the cross would be removed from him. And God said, no. Just because all things are possible with God, as Jesus affirms there in the Garden of Gethsemane, just because all things are possible with God doesn't mean that it is God's will for our suffering to disappear. It's why Jesus also said, not my will, but your will be done. Job in chapter two, verse 10 asks, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? You remember Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, exiles in Babylon, who knew that God was able, them to, able to rescue them from King Nebuchadnezzar and from the fiery furnace. But even if he didn't, even if he chose not to do so, they were not going to bow down and to worship the king's golden statue. You see, what they were saying is no matter what God's decretive will is, that is the, the will of God that he has ordained for our lives, all the details that he has ordained beforehand, all that he has sovereignly decreed to come into our life, even if God's decretive will was for their suffering, his revealed will had not changed. His revealed will, that the will of command, his call to us, to obey his word, right? No matter what the decretive will is, we don't know what it is. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But Deuteronomy 29, 29 goes on to say, but the, the things revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may obey them, right? 
And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were going to remain faithful to the Lord's commands even as they endured this affliction, if that was the will of God. Isn't the same point being made here in the second story in particular? Here's this man. He comes to Elisha from a town called Baal Shalisha, a town probably northeast of Jerusalem in the hill country of Ephraim. And it says that he brings Elisha bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, fresh ears of, of grain in his sack. The first fruits was just that, right? It was the, the first harvest of their, their garden, of their field. And it was to be brought as an offering to Yahweh, to the Lord, and to his priest. Now, in this man's case, right, if you remember the, the story and the setting, uh, he's living in this apostate nation of the northern kingdom of Israel. Right? They're illegitimate priests. There's false worship going on. Jeroboam, you remember, had set up those golden calves and Dan and Bethel had made these, his own priesthood, his own sacrifices and, and, and festivals. There's also false worship in that they're worshiping Baal. Ahab and even Jeroboam, though he wasn't as bad as his father and mother, right? yet his mother was still alive, Jezebel. And so he's still tolerating this Baal worship in his midst. And so this man, rather than bringing the first fruits of, of his produce to the king or, or to the priests of Baal or to the, the calf idols of Dan and Bethel, what does he do? He brings them to Elisha, the true representative of the covenant God. So here's the point. This unnamed saying, we don't know who he was. He didn't let his suffering in a time of famine lead him to shirk his duty to God. Even in his poverty, even in his lack, as he suffered in this famine, he continued to give faithfully to God according to his command. I love how Peter puts this this reality in, in chapter 4, verse 19, he says, Let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. You see, as we walk through affliction, as we walk through all the trials of the Christian life, we are called to trust the Lord and to obey his commands. And it takes faith, doesn't it? to trust the Lord, to obey the Lord, when obeying seems to be a foolish or a scary thing to do. It's especially difficult all right, to trust the Lord, especially easy to fall into fear during times of financial uncertainty, as we have here in our text. Right, this man surely could have used those barley loaves to feed and provide for his own family, but he knew that they belonged to the Lord. All the more so because he had provided for the man these barley loaves in this time of famine, right? What an amazing gift of grace. And so he brings to the Lord the first fruits of what the Lord had provided to him. He brings to the Lord through the man of God, through the prophetic community. Now isn't, isn't it tempting for us as well to, to think that we won't be able to support ourselves, we won't be able to make ends meet if we tithe faithfully, if we give generously to the poor, if we support the work of church planners and missionaries. And so what do we do? We cut back on our giving rather than cutting back on our own expenses ourselves. But what do we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 about the saints of, of Macedonia? We read that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of their liberality. Right? They gave out of their poverty generously. Remember the widow and her might. 
She put in the two small copper coins out of her poverty. All that she had to live on, she gave it to the Lord. Or remember the great promise of God in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, Paul says, all that we need, we may have an abundance for every good deed. You see, the Lord has told us that he will give us all sufficiency for everything. And he has told us that he will give us an abundance for every good deed. How do these two things go together? Well, one of the ways is that the Lord makes us to realize that we need less than we might at first imagine, doesn't he? He makes us content with less so that we have more to give away. He gives us grace to trust that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us, even when we have less. God's fatherly care makes us boldly generous. I wonder if this uh, past Friday, when you saw the weekly email come out, if you received that email and you saw our financial report in, your, in that email, you noticed that we're about $146,000 behind you know, the first nine months of the year in terms of what had been budgeted and what had actually been received. Uh, fortunately, we've been able to keep our, our spending low. And, and so in some areas, we're, we're not as, as bad as it might seem that way. Uh, but our budgeted contributions for the next three months, the rest of the year, is $900,000. $900,000 plus $146,000, $1,046,000. That's a lot of money, isn't it? And that's the money that, that the, the, the officers have seen fit to, to do the work that we believe God is calling us to do. Is the Lord going to provide that? Well, I don't know. I hope. I'm praying to that end. But even if he doesn't, right, your officers are still going to strive to be faithful, to, to preach and teach God's word, to shepherd and to serve the flock. But if he does provide it, how will he provide it? But exactly in the situation that he's providing for the people of God here in this story. Right? He is going to do it through unnamed servants like yourself who are going to sacrificially tie the first fruits of what the Lord has given you. You're going to give that to the Lord and to the ministry here at the church. In the midst of affliction, in the midst of sorrow, the Lord will provide for the needs of his congregation. The Lord will provide for his ministry. Even in scary economic times, this passage is reminding us that the Lord is able to provide for the needs of his people. He's able to provide for the needs of his word, right? For the preaching of his word to go forth, for the, the sons of the prophets to do their ministry. God provides through the faithful giving of unnamed saints. What a great and glorious reality. And so it calls on us, whatever trial we're going through, Never let it be an excuse for disobedience of any kind. Right? Whatever our affliction, whatever our suffering, we are to remain faithful to all of his commands. So that's something else we learn here in this passage. But finally, this story teaches us that in our affliction, we are to trust in Jesus who will one day set all things right. Did you know that the story of the feeding of the 5,000 had an Old Testament precursor? Did you know that the story of Jesus' feeding the 5,000, the 4,000, that wasn't the first time that a miraculous feeding had happened? Here it is in 2 Kings. How can we not in these stories of Elisha see our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Particularly in John's Gospel that we read this morning, Andrew plays the part of this unnamed servant, doesn't he? Asking in wonder and disbelief, 
How in the world are we going to feed everyone with such a small amount of, of food? Five loaves and two fish. And the people, you notice what they said at the end of John 6, verse 14. This is the prophet who's come into the world. Why did they say that when he made the, this miraculous feeding? Well, because of this story. Right? Because Elisha had done the very same thing. He actually hadn't done it. He had just pro- prophesied and predicted that the Lord would do it. But Jesus is greater than Moses, who gave manna to the people in the wilderness. Jesus is greater than Elisha, who fed a multitude with a little. He's greater because he fed more people. He's greater because he had fewer loaves to work with. He's greater because he provided even a richer feast. And he's greater because he did it by his own power and not merely by predicting that it would happen as Elisha did. Jesus is the living word. He is the bread of life. And these stories are are pointing to the fact that God, he is the one who provides for us. And we, therefore, do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of our God. We live by faith in the promises of God in Jesus Christ. In our affliction, we look to our good shepherd. We look to the one who is the bread of life. And we know that he will provide all that we need according to his riches and glory. He is able to do much more abundantly than we could ask or imagine. And he does this not only in this life, but even more so in the life to come, in the ages to come. On the last day when Jesus Christ returns and brings in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, righteousness, peace, shalom, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more death, no more debt, no more disillusionment, no more disappointment, no more death or danger, no more deficiency, no more inadequacy, no longer the creation working against us, no more sin. And so no more discipline for sin. No, paradise will be restored. All things will be made new. The effects of the fall will be eradicated and overcome. All things will be set right. All hopelessness will be removed when Jesus Christ returns on that last day for all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this passage, this story points us forward to Jesus and his feeding the 5,000 and then points us forward to Jesus coming again when there is plenty, when there is abundance, when there is leftovers. Brothers and sisters, Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as you walk through affliction, as you walk through sorrow and suffering, whatever that might be for you this day. Trust in the Lord Jesus who will make all things right when he returns in glory. That is our hope. We look forward to the the things that are unseen, those things that are eternal. They steal our heart in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sorrow. But if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do not know the prophet greater than Elisha, then what hope do you have? And so our call, our invitation, our command is that you would put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, the one who alone can provide for all of your needs, physically and spiritually, the one who will one day come and judge the world in righteousness, the living and the dead, 
The one who, when he returns, will separate the sheep from the goats. And for those who are his, those whom he has called and chosen, those whom he has brought through the fire of affliction, those who the Lord Jesus Christ has delighted to give the kingdom, all things we made new. And so we invite you to join us, to join this glorious band of disciples who rest their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've done that already, brothers and sisters, let not your heart be troubled. Cast all of your cares upon him. He cares for you. He is able to do more than you could ask or imagine. Will he? Well, only time will tell. But even if he doesn't, remain faithful to obey him. Because Jesus one day is coming soon and he will set all things right. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this word, for these stories. Lord, how our hearts need to hear them. How our hearts need to hear of who you are. How our hearts need to hear of what you've called us to. How our hearts need to hear that one day Jesus will come again and will set all things right. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word, for your truth. Lord, would you encourage the hearts of your discouraged saints this morning? Lord, would you convict the hearts of those who do not know Christ, are dead in their sins and trespasses? Lord, would you bring them to a saving knowledge, to a deep trust in Jesus Christ? Lord, we love you because you have first loved us. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus. And so our hearts are glad. They are at peace. We rest and your provision for us, whatever that provision might be. Lord, we love you and we thank you for first loving us. In your, your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.